1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com guest. The exploration of emptiness in the early Buddhist tradition, teachings of the Buddha. <clears throat> it might be important to keep in mind that there are different understandings of emptiness or the word emptiness is used in different ways and so you have to be a little bit kind of fluid or ready to switch and change meanings in different contexts and situations and certainly because of the I think Mahayana Buddhism the tendency in, in many people is to think of emptiness as a almost like a philosophy, the teachings, the philosophy of emptiness. Whereas in the Theravada Buddhism, there's no strong identification with emptiness as a philosophy, but rather um, as something that's directly and immediately connected to our practice and something we can experience. And as practice deepens, at various points, different kinds of ways of experiencing emptiness appear or occur. This idea that emptiness is not so much, I mean, it can be a a way of teaching, a way of understanding for sure of you, but in the Pali suttas, in the teaching of the Buddha, the word emptiness, sunyata, kind of as a noun, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, there's no clear way where it refers to a teaching or a, but rather, it refers more often than not to a place to abide in, a place to dwell, a way of being, a state to, to experience. And so we have the Buddha saying, in the quote forty six, "I often abide in emptiness." So, didn't say he's not saying I often believe in emptiness, or I often think about emptiness but he says, I often abide in emptiness. And then he goes on to say, you should train yourself thus. We will enter upon and and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed emptiness. So emptiness here is something to enter into uh, or something to abide in. Uh, The idea of entering into and abiding in, in, one of the things that, Associations I have with those terms is something that includes all of us. When you enter into, you don't just enter into with your pinky, you know, or just with your thoughts. It's something like your whole being enters into this this place and abides in this state that we live in. Sometimes there's a reference to um, the emptiness samadhi. Samadhi is also, you know, it's not just a meditation practice, but it's a, samadhi means kind of a holistic. Uh, Uh, unified experience or state that we enter into or become. So the the samadhi, the the state of emptiness that can be experienced. And and then we have this uh, passage where the Buddha once said to his main disciple, Sariputta, your faculties are clear. The color of your skin is pure and bright. What abiding do you abide in now, Sariputta? Where do you abide? Where do you dwell? Where are you? What state are you in? And Sariputta replied, Now I often abide in emptiness. So again, we're talking about a place to be more than a way of kind of thinking or understanding. Though the two don't have to be kept apart. So if you... Um, and so there are different kind of meanings of what emptiness is, even in the, in the terms of an experience. And it's a very rich word, the word emptiness. And, um, and even in the common English, we use it in different ways The Henry Nouwen, quote, had a positive spin on the word empty, empty friendly space. And we also have the negative spin on it, I felt so empty, I feel depressed and discouraged, I feel so empty, and, and it's kind of, kind of a, a downer. And um, so, you know, but even even among the positive re- references to emptiness, there's a uh, you know number of different ways to experience it. And it's, I think it's very rich. Maybe it's in many, many ways. And different people will refer to experiences they have as being empty. Or, and they're not necessarily all talking about exactly the same state. But the word is such a powerful descriptive word for a way of being that it's commonly used. Um, so you have to kind of, if you want to understand what they're talking about, you have to either hear them more deeply what they're actually experiencing, or you have to somehow be an empath and kind of feel your way into how they are and share it with them. And as a preface to this, I want to say that um, when Chinese Buddhists translated the word emptiness into Chinese, they they used a, a Chinese character for sky. interesting and this led to all kinds of wonderful poetic language in chinese and japanese buddhism uh, all relating to emptiness connecting it to the sky but here we have a quote from the pali like the path of birds in the sky it is hard to trace the path path of those whose field is the liberation of emptiness and signlessness so if you're if you're liberated with emptiness Somehow you're abiding in emptiness. It's like you know you walk through the world, kind of like a bird maybe through the sky. You can't really find the the, the path, the tracks of the bird flying. There's something not you know, not, 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 kind of a kind of a kind of a tracelessness perhaps of someone who's free. So then forty nine, what friend is the liberation of mind through emptiness? Here a monastic, gone to the forest or to a root of a tree or to an empty hut, reflects thus. This is empty of self or of what belongs to a self. This is called liberation of mind through emptiness. So he's saying reflecting. So again, it's kind of thinking. But I don't think distinctly thinking that there's no self. You know, I can think all kinds of wonderful things significant spiritual wise things and, and i do often enough i think I, I try i try to or something and many times it doesn't help me much <laughs> it's one thing to think it but it's a whole other thing to kind of just to not just reflect on or think it but actually see it or be it to really see it in a deep deep way with insight and to see have an experience that oh, there's no self here I think is one of the lovely experiences to have. And it's something that from time to time I can have it in my ordinary life. Meeting and talking with someone, going about. And uh, I feel like, you know, I I don't feel, I don't have the reference point of a self, of me, of Gil. And it's kind of like I'm transparent or there's no boundaries or there's no sharpness, division. It's kind of like I'm empty. There's nothing here. And, um, and um, and it's really exquisite when it happens. Now, some people ask the question, I think some of you have already in notes, if you know, if, you know, if keep focusing on this not-self, all the stuff which is not-self, well, how do I go about my life? Shouldn't I have a strong self in order to, you know, my therapist has been building up myself for years. You know, and now you know I've spent a lot of money on building up the sense of self and... <laughs> And, you know, now I come to Spirit Rock and you undo all that work. The, um, kind of the teachings of Buddhism is the concept of self is, uh, the idea of self is an abstraction. There is no self as an abstraction, really. I mean, kind of like Spirit Rock is an abstraction. Now, you know, if you're flying over an airplane and point down say, that's Spirit Rock, point to the place, is that really Spirit Rock, the place? If we sold the place and made it into, I don't know what, uh, a camp, kind of a challenge course camp, that's what it is anyway, but, <laughs> but, you know, just, you know, ropes and, high wires and zip lines across the valley and you know look that down there is spirit rock you yeah. know or we make it into a conference center it isn't a place that's spirit rock but then you know look around and you come here and you you know you're trying to pinpoint where is that spirit rock it, you know it must be the meditation hall that's it right that's really spirit rock but then i was Manager told me this beautiful story today about how many countless, many, many people it takes to put on a retreat like this who are invisible to us. So many of the support people, the volunteers, the staff who work here. It's actually a big lot, a lot of pieces that come together. So it's not just the the hall. Is it you because you come and practice here? But what about all the other people? Is it the teachings? but then different teachers have different teachings. You know, can you pinpoint Spirit Rock? Spirit Rock is an abstraction, and we kind of understand the abstraction, and actually different people understand the abstraction in different ways. <clears throat> and so there's sometimes a little <clears throat> jostling at Spirit Rock because some one person has this abstraction of what it means and someone else has this abstraction. It's like, it'll, it'll, you know, they overlap somewhat enough that so we can get along. But, you know, where is Spirit Rock really? So the self is kind of like that too. <clears throat> now the pieces of spirit rock you can strengthen, develop, you can fundraise and have a strong endowment. You can have hire really good people and have strong people. You can have hopefully good teachers and that makes it good. And you can do all these different pieces that add up to a strong spirit rock. So same thing with an individual. <clears throat> you can't build up a strong self. It's just an abstraction. But you can look at particular aspects of a self strong mindfulness, strong confidence, self-understanding, compassion, clear sense of who other people are, how to take care of oneself, patience, wisdom. There's a lot of different particular factors you can build up and make strong. Your therapist might say, building up those particular qualities adds up to making a strong self. Buddhists might say that too, but Buddhists might say, building up those strong qualities is building up those strong qualities. (laughs) <laughs> that's enough. You don't have to say, the, you know, strong self on top of it. It's just strong qualities. Those strong qualities help us negotiate the world in a healthy, sane way. <clears throat> and many of the same qualities you're building up, hopefully, I think, maybe in therapy, are the same good qualities you're building up in practice because those are the good qualities needed. But there's a sensitivity in Buddhism about the dangers of saying self around it because it becomes a magnet for all kinds of ideas, cultural, family, personal ideas, of what it means to have a self. It's enough just to build up a strong sense of self-understanding, strong sense of compassion or care, understanding others and different things. So, when I have a strong sense of this not, you know, I'm empty, of self, one of the ways that I, refer, I, I experience that is I don't, in my experience, if I, I can't find a self. If I was going to stop and turn around and look behind me, you know, look, where is he? <laughs> you know, I don't see anything. And it feels very transparent or very em- empty in a kind of almost physical way. It just feels like there's nothing here in a beautiful way. And at the same time, I'm very aware of the thoughts that arise, the feelings that arise, sensations in the body that are occurring. And if I'm conversing with someone, I'm very aware of the people I'm talking to, what they're saying, what goes on, you know. So there's a kind of a, you know, there's a clear sense of awareness of all the reactions and things going on, but I'm not coalescing it around guilt. I'm quite capable of doing that, unfortunately. At times, but it's also at times when there's not, not none of that goes on, and it's exquisite to have this kind of openness, porous, porousness. And because there's all this awareness of thoughts, feelings, reactions, and all that, it feels very safe. I had one disassociation experience when I was in college where I disappeared in my professor's office. I was so nervous to go to my freshman to go and required office hour visit with my English professor. And I was, you know, kind of, I was so nervous, I sat down in the chair, and I disappeared. And I was wondering, why is he looking at the wall? And next thing I knew, I was out walking down the hallway. I have no idea what happened. I was, I was empty, I wasn't, you know, that's not the emptiness we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> in Buddhism. And there was kind of a dissociation. So, this, uh, uh, so what is the liberation of mind through emptiness? Reflecting this is empty of self and what belongs to self. It's called liberation. And so one, one reference point I have for that is this experience of just being present, fully open, awareness, quite present and aware of it all, all happening, but not coalescing it or centering it around my concept of self that I have to build up or defend or be anything at all. It's just things just happening. Um, so, this is one of the meaning, apparently, in the early tradition of emptiness, liberation, emptiness, liberation, experience of emptiness. And that, uh, so, there's a story. It's called A Day Without Self. One evening, the abbess declared that the next day, every monk and nun was prohibited from using the words I, me, mine, and myself unless it was required for answering a direct question from someone else. The next morning was chaotic. Feeling as if they were learning to walk all over again, the monastics kept tripping over their words and stumbling in all their interpersonal interactions. By the afternoon, some were humbled, confused, or dismayed to learn how frequently their impulses to speak, as well as their thinking, were self-referential. By the evening, the predominant atmosphere in the monastery was one of relief as the monks and nuns realized that they had survived an entire day without initiating any self-focused discussion. And as they lay themselves down to sleep, each person was amazed at how clear and at ease their mind had become. Isn't that nice? I find it very interesting, when I was living in Japan, I was learning Japanese, and in the monastery I was speaking Japanese, and and, um, one of the big surprises for me was, um, in Japanese, it's very rare that you use the personal pronouns, it's just understood in context, the personal pronouns, so, um, if I get up to walk out, uh, I might say walking out, and you all know that I'm the one who's walking out. It's not needed. I'm the one who's walking out. So you don't say I. Um, or um, so there's you know the, the pronouns are often uh, inferred. But in English, we say our pronouns all the time. It's kind of like we, we say it so often we don't even occur, occur to us. It Seems natural, you know. I'm the one who's walking out. So when I started speaking Japanese, I tried to sp- I started to speak it as I spoke English. And if you're gonna use the word I in Japanese, there is a word, it's three syllables, can you believe it? It's a mouthful. And, uh, and then not only that, but you have to use kind of a, I don't know what it's called, but a kind of a linking word, a preposition or something, like the. Um, after those three syllables, so actually if to use four syllables. You have to say, Watashi wa. And you would normally say it at the beginning of each sentence. So when I was speaking, guess what? Almost every Japanese sentence I was saying, I was like, watashi wa. <laughs> and, um, and it stood out very quickly how much you know, I used the word I when I was speaking. So I still find it very interesting to notice how often you know, I'm self-referential. And it's lo- and very interesting to look at that and practice with that. Are there alternatives and other ways of, you know, being than always being self-referential? I find it even more interesting how often our thoughts are self-referential in nature. Now, some of you heard this when I teach this, but I think it still amazes me. If, you know, if someone went around and talked to me as much as I talked to myself, you know, they walked around next to me and talking away, and if they were as repetitive as I am to myself, <laughs> I would, you know, I would certainly beg them to stop talking. I'd ask them. I would pay them. I would, you know, all kinds of, you know, do lots. I'd try to run away. I'd wonder about their sanity. And if, but certainly I get bored. But what's really amazing is I don't get bored that often <laughs> with my own. Inner chatter. I mean, occasionally I do, luckily, or something. But but it's still, say so interesting. And you know, and, and why is that? And I think because much of our thinking, one way or the other, tends to be self-referential. You know, we're so important; it's all about us, or something. So to begin questioning this tendency to be self-referential, and what's an alternative? And there is an alternative. There's a, lot, a variety of alternatives. One of this, it's possible to live a sane, healthy, compassionate, active life, and without this strong sense of self-reference, kind of be porous, be transparent, trans, kind of empty, feeling kind of empty, and it's beautiful. And I'm sure. And what, what's interesting is, I think all of you have had that experience. Maybe you haven't identified it as such. It hasn't stood out as being important. If what's important is me, myself, and mine, we don't notice what's not me, myself, and mine experiences. But it happens all the time. It has to happen. You know, sometimes, you know, maybe it happens on the freeway and some dramatic swerving of cars happens in front of you and you barely get out of an accident. And for a few seconds, you weren't thinking about yourself at all. The usual kind of self-referential ideas, me, myself, and mine. So it's like, you're just working on instinct and it's empty of self. Or, or, you know, various situations we find ourselves. Some people like, part of the reason some people like to be entertained, like reading books or watching movies, is sometimes the sense of self drops away. and You're not thinking about yourself at all. Maybe one of the reasons why those activities can be relaxing for people. I think there's a lot of moments of... Being empty of self-reference, self-concern—that happens throughout the day, in small little moments—and it's very interesting to notice those as they occur. And to value them, to feel what it's like, and feel the difference between when we do get self-concerned and caught up. But it can also be. very frightening to not operate with a sense of self present because in the sense of self you know the idea of self is something we need to develop growing up it's part of the task of a child growing up is to have some clear sense of i'm here and you're over there and to realize that the your you know your neighbor's your classmate's lunch is not your lunch you know, so you don't take your classmate's cookie because you know, it's, there's no self here, there's no self there, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's not a good thing, you know. And so you need to come, tell, this is my cookie, that's their cookie, is a useful thing to have. Otherwise, you know, you know six year old hears too much Buddhist teaching. We're all in trouble there has to be some development understanding of self and the difference between self and other and your reaction and there's certain things we can only take care of do for ourselves and so we have to be able to know that those are and take responsibility for them you can't ask anybody else to pee for you so you know certain things you do for yourself so uh, and so and many people you know feel unsafe in their lives for very good reason. People have difficult lives, very unsafe lives. And part of that sense of self then comes with orienting ourselves and finding ourselves in the world and finding how to be safe in the world. And sometimes as children, that sense of safety around our sense of self and who we are in relation to other people and is how we feel safe. And, and so it's very important to we feel safe. And that gets locked in and continues into, the, into adulthood, sometimes long after the war is over. We continue fighting the battle by thinking we're unsafe and everything. But as the sense of self diminishes, or we come up against the edge, where we see, like I remember for me, at some point in my early years of Buddhist practice, I could see my sense of self and my attachment to it. And I knew I could, should let go of it. Like you're kind of like, Almost like in two, or just beyond it. But I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite, you know, I wasn't willing <laughs> to let go. I knew I had to do it, but not, you know, it's like being at the edge of the pool, jumping in. Like, I wasn't going to go in. The you know, water is cold. I'm not going in. So I could feel like that. So there can be fear arises. You know, and you know, who if I'm not anybody, if I'm not orienting myself as a self in the world, is it safe? Can I take a step into the future? It's like going into the unknown. And is it safe to walk into the unknown? A monk told this story. I had reached an impasse after 25 years in the monastery. I had devoted myself diligently to monastic practice. Through much effort, my powers of concentration, mindfulness, and compassion were among the strongest the abbess had ever seen. I was known for my peace and equanimity. I had no obvious attachments. However, I have not yet attained realization. Other monks and nuns with less time in the monastery and less thorough practice had reached various levels of awakening. Everyone thought my circumstance was most strange. Then one day the abbess took me aside for a long talk. We discussed how how I was held back by my fear of completely letting go. As much as I trusted the spiritual life, at my core was some deep, unarticulated, nagging mistrust. As long as I could remember, a part of me was on the lookout for impending tragedy. At the end of the conversation, the abbess told me she could think of only one more catalyst for my enlightenment. Just the possibility brought me tears of joy. Until she told me it meant entering a basement room called the abyss. No one in many generations had entered this room. Only the abbess was entrusted with a secret knowledge of what was inside. No one else knew. While the red door to the room was kept locked, it didn't need to be. An atmosphere of terror emanated from within, and the monks and nuns were afraid to walk anywhere near the door. Walking down to the basement, the abbess explained that my one and last opportunity was inside this room. Once I entered this room, there would be no turning back. Standing in front of the door, I had mixed feelings about entering. The abbess carefully explained the instructions that had been transmitted to her. I was to step into the room. The abbess would close and lock the door behind me, and under no circumstance would she unlock it again. On entering the room, I was simply to walk to the other side of the room, and exit through the door there. It sounded easy enough. Suddenly, the abbess opened the door and pushed me inside. (laughs) Before I could get my bearings, I heard the door lock behind me. The room proved to to be huge, perhaps 100 feet wide. On the other side of the room was a door just like the one I had entered. The room had no floor. I was standing on a two-foot ledge as wide as the door. Between me and the other door was a gaping abyss. I could not see the bottom. From the depths came horrible grinding and crackling sounds. Occasionally a ball of flame shot upward. <laughs> I was scared and perplexed. How was I supposed to walk across? I spent the first day standing on the ledge studying the room, certain that I was meant to discover some secret way to get across. I spent the second day banging on the door, hoping that someone (laughs) would let me out. I cried most of the third day until, while sitting on the ledge, one of my slippers fell off my foot. As it fell, the grinding noises seemed to get worse. On the fourth day, I desperately and repeatedly reviewed the instructions. They were so simple. Walk across the room and out the other door. Could I trust the abbess? Tired and hungry, on the fifth day, I gave up all hope. Convinced I had no other choice but to try the instructions, I decided to walk off the ledge. I tried not to imagine what awaited me down in the depths. Terrified, I looked straight ahead and took a step into the room, into the unknown. As my foot came down, the ledge stretched forward, receiving me with a firm, stable base. It took me another day to take the second step. But when I finally did, the ledge again extended itself outward to receive my foot. I continued walking into the emptiness, and with each step, the ledge became longer. Soon enough, I had reached the opposite door, opposite side. From that day on, letting go into the freedom of realization has come easily. So to step into the emptiness. So it can be frightening at times. We can be reluctant to do it, even if we see that the possibility is there for us. So that's one kind of meaning of emptiness. And we are sometimes on the ledge. It feels that way. But there's another meaning of emptiness in the early tradition. And it's an emptiness that arises in the course of especially meditation practice, where there can be kind of a natural sequence, natural unfolding that leads to experience of emptiness. And in that guided meditation we did earlier, I tried to give you a little sense of that, following the instructions that the Buddha gave in a discourse called the Shorter Discourse on Emptiness it's in uh it's in your handout. it's uh, middle length discourse one twenty one you know, maybe don't look at it right now, but I want you to pay attention to me <laughs> or at least what I say the um <coughs> well, last night guy talked about as we practice. Our emotions, especially our difficult emotions, might not seem to—you know—suddenly. You know, it's not like a button you can push: eject button, delete button. You feel a fi- f- filled with fear and distress, and depression and grief, or whatever. Anger. I just find that there must be a button somewhere in their mind. If I just find that magic key, you know, I'll be fine. Where is it? And but rather than cutting magic key and just suddenly you know, it's on and off. What often happens at practice, um, they thin out. Remember the word you used with thinning out? The emotions thin over time. Our thinking also can seem so substantial, meaningful at the beginning of a retreat. And slowly, some people have the experience at times where it gets thinner and thinner. And um, our concerns, our preoccupations don't just suddenly go away, but they get lighter, more transparent. There's more gaps between them. And they get kind of wispy after a while. And one of the things that's interesting that happens is that as the things we're attached to, concerned with, gripped by, the grip gets weaker and they get thinner or more transparent or more porous, they don't go away, you know, they get thinner and more porous. It tends to come with a strong sense of well be- or with a sense of well-being. It kind of feels more peaceful or more delightful or joyful, easeful to have this happen. And as the thinning happens, as we're no longer caught up and so caught up, preoccupied, so attached, so resisting it and pushing it away or holding on to it, wanting it, not wanting it, just letting it be there and being present and aware. And this thinning happens. We calm down and settle down. It gets, things get thinner and thinner and thinner. <coughs> and not only does thinner our, our, our kind of afflictive emotions get thinner or or. Um, our thoughts get thinner, more porous, more wispy. But even that sense of self, self preoccupation, self concern, self referentials, sense of even the sense of I am, emness, I am here. It gets thinner and thinner. And as it gets thinner, it just feels so right. It can feel so peaceful, it can feel so joyful, it can feel so blissful even. It just gets thinner. And it's okay. You feel, oh yeah, that's a good. At some point, you can feel, oh, this is a nice process. Yeah, it's okay. Let me. It's okay to kind of let it go, let it go, let it get thinner. And the thought, there's very few thoughts left. Or thoughts are so thin and so light. Even the thought I am, or I'm going to get, or what's what's going to happen to me, or any thought at all. Even the. And you have to have a thought in order to tell you, who, tell, you, tell you who you are. Who are you when there's no thought to tell you? It always gets thinner and thinner and the more space between them. It just feels so right and so good. And at some point it gets so thin, so thin. There's just one little filament left. And just the process has been, been so good, so peaceful, so satisfying. Yes, it's be so good to have that last filament break too. The last holding. The last and even the sense of a mind, of awareness itself, gets thin, and awareness itself, the filament just breaks. And it doesn't even make sense to talk about what's left. But it feels so, you know. It, it doesn't even feel good exactly. It's just nothing, you know. Just but the process, the feeling of how right it is, and how peaceful it is, how liberating it is. It just feels the whole process feels so great, and this last letting go just just seems like just the right thing to do. It's like what could be better? What could be better than having this any filament left? So. The process of what one of the processes of meditation practice that's most closely associated with concentration practices, but with all meditation mindfulness as well, is there's a process where we go from coarser to more and more refined states of mind, or coarser activities to more refined. And so, um, so at first, you know, there's a lot of thoughts and concerns, you know, maybe you came to the retreat and you're still really upset about what happened at work or at home, and you can't believe, you know, that person said that. And your first day of the retreat, you're reviewing the conversation and what you're going to do, and you just can't. You're trying to let go of it, but you're just you're gripped in it. And by the second day, it's not so prevalent anymore, and you know you settled some more, and gets you know that coarse activity of churning and thinking and analyzing and getting revenge has settled down. And this, so you're still there a little bit the second day, you know, but it's not so. Third day, it's you know, just every once in a while it comes in. By the fourth day, perhaps, you know, it's you know, just a few times it wisps in and out. Fifth day, what what work? Do I have a job? <laughs> you know, kind of you kind of forget it. it kind of settles settles down. But it also, so not only the concerns, but also the force and the engagement with those thoughts and ideas settles down too, and goes from a very agitated, forceful kind of thinking or feeling around things to kind of get more and more quiet and thinking thinking gets quieter as well. And so meditation goes from this kind of more coarse activities to more refined. And so the Buddha said in, in giving instructions on entering into emptiness he said uh, one way to do it is to first is to get instructions he gives uh, you can you can read it later but right now just uh, maybe better just to follow me maybe remembering the meditation we did earlier and maybe maybe kind of take this almost as a guided meditation again, perhaps. But the Buddha said that a person would go into the woods to meditate, probably a quiet, peaceful place, secluded, nice place in nature. And be aware that now that you're in the woods in a peaceful place, the hustle and bustle, the disturbances of urban life, being on Market Street in San Francisco you know, is not, not here and this beautiful grove of trees you're sitting in is empty of the hustle and bustle of town and so you're aware oh, this is now empty like I said in the meditation being in this room we're empty of busyness, of other things no one's moving, just empty of a lot of activity and you can be aware of that empty That's empty of those things and then at some point, you let go of thinking about town. You know, why should you think about town? You know It's nice to know that it's without town here in the hustle and bustle. And you just kind of settle in uh, to here, being a person that's here. But then the sense of there being a person, I, body here, is also a thought that's somewhat coarse, abstract, and so you can let go of that abstraction and, and just feel the immediacy of sensations. In the discourse, the Buddha talks about the earth element. Just feel the earth. But it, just sensations as they arise and pass in the body. And you realize when you're just feeling the arising and passing of sensations, your experience is now empty of a gross, overarching concept of self that's kind of tying it all together, holding it that's as an image of it all. So it's empty of, of this usual sense of self. And then as you kind of uh, experience the sensations, the Buddha then said, if you let go, I was saying, what's left, he said, is this, he called it disturbance, the activity of all those sensations going on. That's the kind of level of coarseness. And then that coarseness falls away, and that disturbance falls away, and he's, this, this, this instruction says you become aware of space. All the space, that's all that's left. So not the details of what's happening within the space, but just the space that holds it all. And as you really enter into that world of space and really take it on, just that's the primary focus of perception of awareness, you realize that now your experience is empty of those sensations you had before. But what's left is the disturbance, a very refined disturbance, usually we wouldn't think of it as being disturbing, but a little bit of the activity of the mind that's focused on experiencing the space. So then you let go of that perception, that thought, that focus on space and focus on something which is more refined, more settled, more quiet, which is not the space but the awareness that knew the space. Sometimes people talk about having this infinite experience of consciousness. All there is is consciousness. And then you're aware that the space now is empty of, now that the consciousness, the awareness is empty of the space. Awareness of space, thinking about space, perceiving the space. And then the person lets go of consciousness, awareness. Now How do you do that? What's that about? And as we follow these steps, the mind becomes more and more empty of particular things. This isn't that you see the emptiness of the phenomena, which is a very important insight, but rather we're actually the mind, the mind, the perception, the awareness, the field of cognition or whatever, becoming empty of many of the normal things that it would be filled of. It becomes simpler, simpler, simpler. And this is a profoundly satisfying thing to do. There's a lot of deep abiding peace and well-being that comes when the mind gets so simple and empty and all this extraneous activity. It all seems extra. And in fact, if you imagine yourself in the deepest states of meditation you've ever been in, I don't know what it is for different ones of you, but some state of deep calm, abiding, sense of satisfaction, and just being here, being alive is enough. It just feels very peaceful and settled and relaxed. And someone, you know, the manager comes and says, you know, we got a phone call and um, you've, you know, lucky you, but you've just gotten tickets to the World Series. It's happening in four hours and I'll take you there. (laughs) You know, ah! (laughs) I mean, you know, the World Series can be a fun thing to do in its own time and place, but, you know, it feels like, you feel like an affront. It feels like that's painful. That's, that's agitating to do that. And so that language you might use for like, you know, in that, in that contrast between being, um, you know, in such a peaceful state, peaceful state and going off to do something really marvelous that other, other times would be great might be something like this. And understanding the context for making the statement is very important. Otherwise, it can seem that um, it's kind of a world-negating statement. But probably you would say something like this too in that contrast. World series or being deeply at peace. right? So, a monastic enters upon and abides in the first jhana, the first deep absorption, um, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture, with pleasure, born of seclusion. It's very peaceful, very pleasant. Then whatever is present in that state of material form, feeling, perceptions, formations, and consciousness, the monastic sees those states as impermanent, as suffering, as a disease, as a tumor, as a barb, as a calamity, as an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as empty as not-self. So you're sitting in this deep state of peace, and there's a lot of things you wouldn't want to pick up that normally you might want, because it just feels like it would be uh, agitating. You'd lose this deep pleasure. But in that deep state, you actually look at the the degree to which you still feel body, feelings, thoughts, and you can feel and sense that there's something even better. There's a deeper peace, a deeper freedom, a deeper ease. If you weren't focused on even the pleasure, even the pleasure of meditation can seem like too much of a focus. And you'd rather, you know, let go of that. Not not that either. And in this particular passage, it says then realizing the limitations of even those states that are pleasant, the person then directs their mind to something which is unconditioned, unformed, uncreated. Here it's described, the monastic turns his or her mind away from those states of the five aggregates and directs it to the deathless element. Thus, this is peaceful, this is sublime, this is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, and divana. To put it in the shorthand, one would realize that at some point, even the subtlest attachment, greed, hate, delusion, subtlest movement for and against is not needed. In fact, it's kind of painful to be involved in. And one would direct oneself or settle back or open up into a peace that has no desire, has no aversion, has no intentions, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to attain, where the mental formations, all the activity of the mind of thinking and analyzing, figuring out and how is this, going to do, how is this enlightenment going to help me, all that activity would just fall away, St- the stilling of it, the quieting of it, the thinning out of it. And the mind has a chance to f- discover a kind of peace that's said to be unconditioned. I like to think of it as a peace that arises not in relationship to things. And mostly we're always in relationship to things. And it's exhausting to always be relating. And you know, sometimes we don't realize the exhaustion of it until we do attain some deeper thinning and quieting out. And then to, to turn the mind to that which, that mind, that place, which is not relating, just is. So to do that, at some point, we keep doing is thinning out, settling in this concentration path. And at some point the mind becomes empty of the last filaments of greed, hate, and delusion. That's kind of the shorthand for clinging or attachment. And then you know, the person knows the mind is empty of greed, hate, and delusion. It's a powerful thing to happen, to happen at the very kind of the, the, the roots of the mind, the roots of the heart deep down the latent tendencies, the foundation, the foundation stones of what makes our psychophysical system all work and operate, to really kind of find the deepest kind of attachment and clinging and let it go, let the filaments just pass. And they realize it's gone, even if it's just temporarily. And then it's a lot easier when you come out of that place to be able to sense or experience or intuit a place of being empty of self as you go about your life. It's kind of a, a kind of luminous emptiness within which all things occur. Whenever there are not present disturbances dependent on the taints of sensual desire becoming and ignorance, and we And whenever there is only the disturbance connected with the six sense bases that are dependent on the body and are conditioned by life, then in understanding this, one regards it as empty of what is not there. In other words, these clingings. But as to what remains there, one understands that which is present thus. This is present. This is, the, this is one's genuine, undistorted, pure entry into emptiness, supreme and unsurpassed. So I, I like this, supreme entering um, into emptiness. Is your sense are still operating. You're aware of the world as it is. Thoughts arise, sensations arise, experiences, things happen. Feelings happen. So you can live a life. You know, you're know, you still alive. You're still a person. You can function well in the world. But what's empty is is you're living a life that's free of clinging. And this is what the Buddha called the supreme. The, the genuine, undistorted, pure entry into emptiness. Supreme and unsurpassed. So empty of clinging. So that's the goal of Buddhism. So here we have at least two different ideas of what emptiness is. There's the emptiness of not feeling a self here. And then the second idea is emptiness, that is this emptiness that comes with emptying, emptying, emptying the mind of extraneous activity, thinning out and then the emptying, the emptiness of emptiness of clinging, of of the taints, of the klesas, of the asavas, of of, um, greed, hate and delusion. So this is the direction the practice is going. So emptiness, the experience of emptiness here and now, leads to what sounds to you as a radical simplicity of being, where we can just be present for how things are. They arise and they pass. We hear, we taste, we touch, we think, we smell. But there's no Latching onto it or grabbing onto it or resisting it. Or. So, guys, I read the quote earlier of just empty phenomena rolling through, rolling on. There are a few more ideas of emptiness in the tradition. But I think uh, it's probably enough. Emptinesses. And one of the things I hope has been conveyed in this talk is that it's okay, it's worthwhile, it's appropriate to allow yourself to let go of the things that you normally think about or concerned about or involved in. It's okay to, it's actually quite safe. It's probably the safest place to be is to let go of the holding on attachment to self, being self-referential. It's okay. And I want to hope that was conveyed because it's so hard for our poor little minds to really believe that. There's so much we, we think that our the solutions for our life, our safety, our well-being are found in the concerns, the thoughts, the things we're attached to. I'll end with, I'll end with a very short little piece from here. One evening, the abbess taught, Your problems won't be solved in this monastery. They will be dissolved. And may your problems be dissolved. So, what I'd like to uh, suggest is that uh, we don't take questions today, but somehow let the emptiness, the stillness, the quiet of the morning that we've had so far, somehow inform or linger, linger intuitively, and the rest of the morning perhaps. And so why don't we have now really an hour, I guess, until the next sitting, and for you to Do what you feel is best. Sit, walk, go for a stroll, have tea, whatever seems best to let this emptiness linger for you, or let you be in touch with something that's empty. Thank you.